prep, no, well, pre-exposure prophylaxis has been a sea change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's taken a while for people to adopt PrEP, but now that they have, even between 2014 and 2015, that the number of Americans who adopted PrEP went up by the tens of thousands. Um, and, and now it's well over, um, well over 100,000 or 200,000 wow. um, who are on PrEP, primarily gained by sexual men. Um, um, women um, and communities of color are, are falling behind uh, but the wonderful thing about PrEP is um, people who take the pill um, know that as long as they're on the pill, that likelihood of transmission is virtually zero, um, if not zero. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really incredible how far we've come. Welcome to Radio Freak Utopia, the podcast about global LGBTI human rights. I'm your host, Ian Likas. Today, December 1st, 2017, is World AIDS Day. We're 36 years into the HIV global epidemic, and to mark World AIDS Day, I'll be talking with Greg Millett. Greg is the Vice President and Director of Public Policy for AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research. A globally recognized advocate and researcher on HIV AIDS, Greg has previously held leadership positions at the Centers for Disease Control and at the White House Office on National AIDS Policy. At the White House, Greg served as a senior policy advisor and was one of the three lead authors of President Obama's National AIDS Strategy. He also served as the federal government's lead on organizing work for the International AIDS Conference held in Washington, D.C. back in 2012. Greg has worked on a vast array of HIV policy issues. Perhaps most notably, he played a major role in ending the travel ban that had prevented HIV-positive persons from traveling to or seeking permanent residency in the United States. With dozens of publications in peer-reviewed journals, Greg's record as a researcher is just as impressive. In particular, Greg has transformed how we understand the disparities of HIV infection among African-American gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Beyond all of that, Greg has been a dear friend of mine for more than 20 years, so for this first World AIDS Day episode of Radio Freak Utopia, I'm very excited and just delighted to have Greg Millett to talk with me about where we are in the fight against HIV, the good news, the looming challenges and concerns, and the unexpected and surprising news. We'll get to our conversation in a moment, but before we get going, just a couple quick reminders. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Radio Freak Utopia at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or through your favorite podcatcher. Follow Radio Freak Utopia on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please tell your friends about us. Now, here's my conversation with Greg Millett. Let me have you introduce yourself. Oh, sure. Um, my name is Greg Millett. I am the Vice President for AMFAR, um, the Foundation for AIDS Research, Vice President and Director of Public Policy here, um, and have been living in Washington, D.C. now for the last decade. So here we are in 2017. Uh, for our listeners, we've been having versions of this conversation for more years than I think either of us want to count. But you know, we are 36 years into, you know, since the quote-unquote official beginning of this epidemic. Obviously, it's even more complicated than that. But where are we today? You know, I think it's a good news, bad news story today. Um, Perhaps a little bit more good news than there has been over the last, you know, three and a half decades of the epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, the good news is that um, new infections for HIV are decreasing in the United States mm-hmm. as well as around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the fact is, is that there are more people who have HIV who are living longer. They're living healthier lives mm-hmm. because of the access to antiretroviral therapy. Um, and they're moving on with very productive lives, you know, getting married, having children. Um, I have several colleagues who are HIV docs here in the United States, and it doesn't matter where you go, if you're in New York City, or if you're in the West Coast, or if you're in the middle of the country, um, most of the HIV docs say, you know, it's it's becoming a little bit boring, um, because, um, you know, people are virally suppressed, Um, many folks are taking their meds, um, and there's just not a need um, for patients to come in more than twice a year, um, with some patients not even coming into touch base once a year, um, if they're consistently on their medications. That's the good news. The bad news is um, 
there's a lot of different things that are taking place domestically that um, could jeopardize some of the good process, good progress that we've been making. Um, one of the things is Congress still hasn't landed on what type of health care um, they would like to see um, throughout the United States. We've had the Affordable Care Act where CDC's released figures showing that between 2008 and 2014 that there's been a precipitous increase in the number of people living with HIV who have access to health insurance, which was a great thing with ACA. You know, imagine that's what happens when you get rid of pre-existing conditions and when you have Medicaid expansion. Um, and when you see that increase, you actually see that increase among all populations. You see it um, by race and ethnicity, all populations, by age group, um, by people who are HIV positive, people who are HIV negative, um, men, women, it, it, everyone has this increase in insurance, which is important. Um, but with the uncertain landscape, um, we're not sure whether or not that's going to continue. And if that doesn't continue, then that has implications for the epidemic itself, because if people are not on medication, if people are not virally suppressed, um, then we're gonna go back to a time where we're going to see transmissions increase and where you're gonna see people dying, uh, more of HIV. I think the, the other bad news is that um, to a certain degree, we're a victim of our own success. Mm -hmm. um, there's just been so much success around the medications, particularly in the United States and other parts of the Western world, that you don't see a lot of people who are sick uh, with HIV. And, and that's a good thing. But the bad part of it is that um, it's no longer in the consciousness of you know, the populace, of Americans and people around the world. And if it's no longer in the consciousness, then it's no longer an issue. It's no longer a problem. And unfortunately, HIV still remains a problem globally. Um, when we take a look at, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa alone um, comprises anywhere from a quarter to a third of all HIV cases in the, in, in the whole world. Um, and the epidemic there is, you know, we're talking in as much as one in two people um, who, who are infected in uh, certain regions of Southern Africa. <clears throat> um, and there's a lot more that needs to get done there. But the problem is, is that if it's not in the news, if people are not thinking about it, um, then there's not necessarily resources that are devoted to it. And we've been seeing this um, stall in funding HIV globally, um, not just from the United States, but from other donor countries as well, um, where it's not seen as urgent as it has been. Um, to a certain degree, I think there's some fatigue, some donor fatigue around the issue, uh, thinking that... Uh, uh, this is something that's going to be never ending um, and uh, perhaps that there are other more pressing issues that people need to address. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of our primary challenges that we're facing right now as well. Uh, and then to come back even domestically for, you know, more bad news, um, even though we have health insurance for many of these different populations, you still find that African-Americans are less likely to have health insurance um, compared with whites and same thing with Latinos. Um, and if that continues, then that's certainly going to increase HIV disparities, the infection disparities that we already see by race and ethnicity in the U.S. And then I think the last bit of bad news that I would mention um, is that um, we're seeing increasing infection rates in certain populations. So uh, for individuals who are HIV positive or um, who are over 50, which is most Americans who are HIV positive who are over 50, um, individuals who are negative and over 50, we're seeing a slight increase in infection rates. And, and that's something that's worrisome. We don't know exactly what's happening there. And we're also seeing an increase in infection rates for uh, men who have sex with men who are Latino, um, a population where the infection rates were fairly stable for many years, and now it's gradually ticking up. Um, and that's something that's worrisome for, for quite a few people because the disparities are already high enough between um, Latinos and whites in terms of HIV infection. And unfortunately, it looks like that that's going to continue. Ah, there's a lot in there to digest and to take apart, but thank you for that overview. Uh, taking that last part, what, you know, we don't have a clear sense yet of why these rates are increasing among Latino MSM, men who have sex with men. Do we have any reasonable um, informed speculation at this point? You know, I, I, I can only talk to what I think might be happening. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in looking at it systematically with other colleagues who are scientists to see what, what may be happening. You know, one um, of the things that may be taking place is um, that there's been a huge focus on black gay and bisexual men justifiably over the past um, 15 years or so, um, primarily because the infection rates 
were just not abating. They were incredibly high. They kept increasing. It was the only group where you just saw these ridiculous numbers of infection rates year after year. But I think that that had an effect. I think that to a certain degree that crowded out um, any messaging for Latino MSM. Um, and, and, and that's problematic. Um, if the messaging isn't there, then the funding isn't necessarily getting going there. Um, these groups might not see themselves at risk because the messaging isn't going to them. It's going to black gay men um, primarily or, or others. Um, and you can see high infection rates. The other thing I think is happening is, of course, the health insurance issue and access to health insurance. Um, what we've seen now is this new innovation called pre-exposure prophylaxis, which keeps people from um, getting HIV if they are exposed to it. It's just a pill that you take every day. Um, it's one of these huge advances that actually is a part of the good news story that we have. The problem, though, is that with any types of these new advances, particularly medical advances, that the people who have access to them um, are precisely not the populations that need them uh, or need them the most. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Latino populations, African-American populations, both of whom um, have a higher risk of acquiring HIV, um, are less likely to have access to this particular innovation because of money, because of lack of access to health insurance for even a multiplicity of reasons, including um, physicians who would be unwilling to give these pills to these populations, believing that they won't take the pills um, consistently. So I think that that's another issue for Latino MSM. Uh, other issues that I think might be taking place is um, even though we're seeing some decreases in meth use um, for white gay men, and meth I mean by crystal methamphetamine, it's a variation of um, amphetamines. It's been around for maybe four decades now, started around in the 50s or 60s. Uh, with biker gangs and, and truck drivers who had used it uh, to keep up all night on long hauls across the country. Um, it was a big issue in the gay community, particularly in the 90s, mm -hmm. particularly among um, white gay men. Um, and it's associated with HIV infection because people who take meth um, are usually taking it because they're at these large parties. Some of these parties, there's a lot of um, group sex that's taking place. There's a lot of unprotected sex that's taking place. People are not necessarily taking care of themselves. Um, and it was always associated with transmission um, and, and inhibition. The problem now is that we're seeing more meth use among Latino MSM. It's starting mm -hmm. to increase. It's also increasing among black MSM. And that's something else that's, that's worrisome for us. Um, I think the last thing um, to consider is, you know, when we see the increases among Latino MSM, we have to be really cognizant of, of who we're seeing these increases with. I mean, Latinos are not a monolith, just like African-Americans are not a monolith, but particularly so among Latinos. I mean, we see differences in infection rates among Latinos depending upon country of origin. So there's less HIV among Argentinians as compared to, say, Dominicans um, and, and, and other groups or even Puerto Ricans. Um, and I think that we need to do a deeper dive to try and figure out, well, this rise in infections, is it taking place in specific groups? Um, and if it is, then what can we do that is culturally relevant uh, to make sure that prevention materials, adequate prevention materials and care materials are delivered to these populations? And with why, in thinking about the infection rates within, you know, by country of origin, place of origin, you know, is it a question of sort of social networks of one group hanging out with other members of the same group um, or other factors that we might you know, want to take into consideration? Well, social networks could certainly be a part of it. I mean, we certainly know that in, in many Latino populations in the United States that um, there are particular places and regions and parts of cities and neighborhoods where, where many people hang out. Um, so that, that can be it. Um, one of the things that people were wondering as well is the degree to which migration might be associated with this too. So um, people who um, um, might have been uh, infected here or not, brought it back to their home country while visiting home um, or vice versa, um, and, and the degree to which that might be associated with it. Other things that um, people are trying to figure out is the degree of acculturation among even various Latino populations. So if you've been in the country longer, um, you're more acculturated, you're more American, uh, quote unquote, um, and if you're gay, you're more likely to be out. You're more likely to be um, hanging out in the gay scene and, and, and with gay friends, etc. Now, being out is a wonderful thing, but there's also some pitfalls to being out. The more out you are, the more likely that you are to have more sex partners, the more likely that you are to have unprotected sex with men, um, and the more likely you are to seroconvert. 
with HIV. So even acculturation might be an issue that might be going on when we take a look at Latinos. We can't take a look at all Latinos. It might be just those Latinos who are acculturated where we're seeing this higher degree of infections. And then I think the last thing too is um, the whole racial aspect of being Latino. I mean, my, my family is from a Panamanian Cuban background and you know, my name is definitely Latino. People speak Spanish in my family. But the way that I am presented in the United States and the way that people see me when they first see me is black, <laughs> definitely African-American, um, and are shocked when they find out that I have a Spanish name and, and, and all these other things. And I, I think that um, I know, actually, that, that I'm not alone, that there's a lot of Latinos um, in the United States, identifiably Latino culturally, um, who many people regard as African-American. Um, and I also wonder, you know, in those Latino populations where we're seeing these increases, how many of them um, are also people who would be in both categories that people would regard as African-American um, rather than white Latinos. Um, and I think a lot of that bears some investigation. Well, that's extremely useful. And thinking so much about how people move back and forth. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, migration to the United States, migration from the United States, people moving, quote unquote, for good, people going one place or the other for an extended visit. Uh, we're sitting here in Washington, D.C., which, of course, has a huge Salvadoran population and can't help but wonder about what goes back and forth and not just in one direction in that case. Likewise, thinking about that in terms of what we have access to in the U.S., urban and rural, since sometimes the story is about African-American, you know, as much as we're talking about this issue these days, which is not what it once was, you know, talking of assumption of African-American equals urban, and the story being, you know, currently the rates of HIV here in D.C. are astronomical, mm -hmm. um, but that's not specifically a D.C. phenomenon or an urban phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And you were recently quoted in a New York Times piece, sort of some remarkable reporting about uh, HIV in the American South and the rural South. Um, so how does, you know, what does looking at place do to thinking about sort of you know, think looking at urban and rural America or looking at rural Indiana yeah, and the crisis that is there, uh, you know, especially that started under then Governor Mike Pence. Absolutely. I mean, I think what you see, particularly in the South and other places, uh, is what happens to when there is not adequate prevention policies um, that are in place, um, when you have systems um, of healthcare that you know, break down. Um, certainly we see a lot of HIV in the North, we see it in the West and other places, but we also have adequate prevention tools in many of these different places um, that um, is not necessarily always there in the South because of political reasons. Uh, and um, unfortunately, we saw an outbreak in Scott County among injection drug users because there was not adequate health care within that county. Um, because there was not a needle exchange program, and we know needle exchange programs actually prevent disease transmission. Um, um, and then the multiplicity of other issues that we know are associated um, with higher rates of injection drug use, you know, very poor area, um, um, high rates of joblessness, etc. Um, but then we see also the same thing um, among African Americans and Latinos um, in the South, where the rates of infection are higher than particularly African-Americans in other parts of the country, mainly because more African-Americans live in the South um, than in other parts of the country. Um, and, and, and that's an issue. I, I think the other issue that we see too with um, the South and particularly some of the rural communities in the South, um, and, and this is more for, for gay men who have grown up in rural communities. Many of them leave those communities. They go to the large urban centers um, like New York or San Francisco or Washington, D.C., um, and if something happens, um, if they acquire HIV, um, then they go back home. Um, and once they go back home, um, the resources may not be as plentiful as Washington, D.C., San Francisco, or New York City in terms of care. Um, the treatment centers might not be as um, uh, knowledgeable about HIV care. Um, the stigma around HIV care is certainly higher um, than in other parts of the country. Um, and it makes it difficult for these folks to re-engage in care within these communities. And if they're not in care, then they're more infectious. And if they're more infectious, they're more likely to transmit HIV. And the thing that you could definitely say about um, what takes place in the rural South is that 
the networks are far more dense um, and, and far more, um, uh, they're, they're, they're more dense than some of the networks that you see in urban communities in the sense that uh, you're just one degree of separation from many other people in your community. And once you introduce HIV in that, um, it could spread like a wildfire, uh, which, which is something that, that I think everybody worries about. Um, we certainly don't want another Scott County. We certainly don't want um, more outbreaks like the scale of the outbreaks that we saw in North Carolina among young college students or the outbreaks that we saw in Mississippi among young black gay men um, or in other places of the South. Um, we, we, we really are trying to stem as much of those as possible. To go in a slightly different direction, but to build on something you mentioned a couple a moment or two ago, you talked about stigma. How you know we have seen a lot change over time. We have been in the trenches in various ways over that long time. How has stigma evolved, and how has it not evolved around HIV? Sure, you know, um, at the beginning of the epidemic. Um, HIV was considered, uh, you know, uh, a gay disease, gay-related immune deficiency syndrome. And of course, there was a huge stigma around that. Um, I think both you and I, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, you know, you would see letters that would be scrawled in graffiti, which would say fag equals AIDS um, in so many different places. Um, you know, but HIV was also associated with other groups back then, too, with um, Haitian immigrants, with uh, um, hemophiliacs, with injection drug users, all of whom were also equally stigmatized um, against this disease. And what took place um, in the 90s um, and certainly in the late 80s was in some way to democratize HIV um, by saying we're all at risk for HIV. Um, and the reason that that took place was to really try and reduce some of the stigma for those populations that were demonstrably at higher risk for HIV, uh, to, for us to just try and make it less, just, uh, less stigma for them. There's good and bad for that. Um, the good was that it did raise awareness about HIV. I mean, many of the reasons why we see such big donations going to many of these charitable organizations and the AIDS walk and everything else is because of stigma. And these are people who um, might have lost a friend to HIV or family members or others, but some others don't know anybody who's HIV positive. Um, but they're fine walking and being a part of a campaign that's associated with HIV. So in that sense, it's, it's successful. Where it wasn't successful though, is that a lot of the money um, for the epidemic, for prevention and care um, over the years has not necessarily gone to those populations who need it most. So by saying everyone's at risk for HIV, um, well, it's easier for the government and for organizations to give money to precisely those populations where there's very little, if any, HIV, um, rather than focusing on the populations that are far more marginalized where there's a lot of HIV. So transgender women got overlooked, gay men got overlooked, um, uh, people of color and others got overlooked. Um, and, and, and that was an issue by democratizing it. Um, the other thing is that um, even though we've made a lot of progress in terms of HIV stigma, we really haven't come that far. So back in 1987, I believe that there was a survey that was done by Pew or Kaiser Family Foundation um, that asked people, Americans, um, the different modes that they believe that you can get HIV. One was a mosquito bite. One was um, sharing a drink of water with a person who was HIV positive. Um, and then the third was um, going to the bathroom in a place where someone who was HIV had went to the bathroom. Um, and it was about a third of Americans who, in 1987 who said that you can get HIV from any of those activities, from you know, going to the bathroom in a place where there's someone who was HIV positive or um, uh, any of the other two that I had mentioned. And the sad thing about that is that they did that same survey 20 years later, and they found that a third of Americans still believed that you could get HIV in any one of those modalities. So it, it just goes to show how entrenched stigma is, is that even after 20 years, um, the proportion of Americans who really had these um, incredibly stigmatizing, incorrect beliefs about how HIV is transmitted um, still held on to those beliefs. Yeah, I, you know, a number of different things that pop to mind listening to you. Uh, certainly the stigma that persists, you know, when you're on any uh, gay networking app, you know, anything or on 
scruff, grinder, grower, et cetera, uh, and the language of clean or disease-free, et cetera, that persists here in 2017. Uh, I've got a specific statement question, but something you said made me make a connection I never had before, which is the democratization around stigma going from 1990 and coming out to my father, first words out of his mouth being, have you been tested for AIDS? To jump forward to seven years later and the last conversation I ever had with him, knowing full well, both of us knowing full well, it would be the final conversation we ever had, uh, he reiterated his concern uh, for my future and possible infection, but he also you know, extended that to my straight brother and sort of the mm -hmm. extension of you know, that the, the shift to everybody at being at risk, you know, this deeply personal moment, but in this broader context is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, coming back around to stigma in the here and now, how do you think PrEP has changed stigma politics? Or has PrEP, no, well, pre-exposure prophylaxis has been a sea change. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's taken a while for people to adopt PrEP because um, PrEP has been around for quite some time. Um, but now that they have, I mean, you're seeing, I, I believe that CDC had figures showing that even between 2014 and 2015, that the number of Americans who adopted PrEP went up by the tens of thousands. Um, and, and now it's well over, um, well over 100,000 or 200,000 wow. um, who are on PrEP, primarily gay and bisexual men. Um, um, women um, and communities of color are, are falling behind. Uh, but the wonderful thing about PrEP is um, people who take the pill um, know that as long as they're on the pill, that likelihood of transmission is virtually zero, um, if not zero. Um, if they come into contact with someone who's HIV positive. And, and what, I th what I'm witnessing um, among my friends and others are younger people, younger gay men, um, who are going through a period that you and I didn't necessarily have, <laughs> where they have their own sexual revolution um, that mirrors to a certain degree what took place in the 1970s and other places, and an openness um, around um, sex, around dating, um, that wasn't necessarily there in the 80s and the 90s. In the 80s and the 90s, um, I would go to dances or groups where there were mainly positive men, because I grew up in New York City and I had a lot of friends who were positive. And other friends would say, well, why are you there? You know, those, those men are diseased. You want to stay away from them. Um, and they certainly wouldn't consider dating anyone who is HIV positive. Uh, that's changed a lot now, uh, where even though people do use words such as clean and, um, you know, all, all these other ridiculous words, there's still a large segment of um, HIV negative men who have now entered the dating pool for HIV-positive men and consider HIV-positive men seriously as, as, as partners. And that's, that's a sea change completely. And, you know, we can only hope that that type of breakdown um, and stigma continues. Because for a long time, we all used to call it the zero-status divide. HIV-negative men only dated HIV-negative men. HIV-positive men only dated HIV-positive men. And that's, that's disappearing. And it's not just for gay men. It's disappearing for heterosexuals as well. Um, you're seeing um, more HIV-positive women um, in particular um, who are electing to have children with HIV-negative men and vice versa. Uh, simply because we have pre-exposure prophylaxis and um, it's, it's, you know, you can just do everything the old-fashioned way. <laughs> There's no reason to go through some of the many techniques that people used to have beforehand of sperm washing and everything else. Uh, now it's just, just the old-fashioned way and you can conceive a child and um, there's no transmission and, and everything works out well. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really incredible how far we've come. One of the things I've been wondering, you know, is you know, to what degree is PrEP a useful strategy globally? Mm -hmm. And the follow-up question my, or thought in my head is thinking about what we talked about a few minutes ago in terms of assumptions by doctors that, oh, you won't take this, you won't keep to a regimen. So I asked that question with that caveat in mind. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, the, the answer is twofold. So the thing you have to keep in mind is that many of these technologies never remain in the same incarnation um, uh, as they are first created. So with mm -hmm. PrEP, 
you know, it's a pill that you take once a day. Um, it's fairly expensive because you essentially have one pharmaceutical company that has had a, a virtual um, stranglehold on the market, but you now have other generics that are going to be coming into play as well um, that would change that. Um, the issue with taking something once a day, every day, is that not everybody's going to be able to adhere to that type of regimen. We see that with people who have to take blood pressure medication or any other types of medication, is that taking a pill every day once a day is not easy. Um, and it also can be fairly expensive. Just think about the number of pills that have to be shipped overseas um, and what those costs would be um, for the many uh, groups of people who are HIV negative and at risk for HIV overseas. Uh, the good thing, though, is that the technology is changing. So there are now um, studies that are taking a look at injectable PrEP, where essentially you can take an injection um, and that can protect you anywhere from one month to three or four months um, from getting HIV, which is pretty incredible. They're also looking at implants um, that can be placed subcutaneously. Uh, really small implants and you know a lot of this coming from reproductive health technology uh, where they're saying that it can protect people for as long as a year um, taking some of these implants and I think once the technology changes to something that's not once a day um, which would be very hard to do um, in, in, in some um, parts of the world to something where people just have to take it once every three months or um, visit the doctor once a year, particularly if you're in a rural area and um, the doctor is more than 50 or 60 miles away um, and it's hard to, to get to the doctor, something like this type of technology would be extremely useful. Um, so sure, as it is now, PrEP um, is a little bit more difficult in the global context, though it doesn't mean that it's not being administered. We see that PEPFAR and, and other um, um, global players are certainly using PrEP. Um, in various countries and with some populations. Um, but I think that the use is only going to increase once the price of the drug comes down and more generics come into the market. Um, and once the technology itself changes from once a day to injectables or subcutaneous, where there are more people who are susceptible who would be able to take it. And that, when that day comes, there's going to be a sea change um, in being able to dramatically reduce new infections globally. Where are we globally? And I mean, that brings up just the question of, you know, we've talked primarily about the context of an evolving American epidemic. And certainly, we both know a whole bunch of people who have no memory of an American epidemic. And have, that also involves not paying attention to ongoing current epidemics. I say that with a caveat. Um, but I think about Having taught, as you know, as you have visited my class in the history of HIV, you know the you know the word almost immediate word association of AIDS in Africa, African AIDS, which of course speaks to how we do and don't talk about Africa, you know, and its 54 countries in any meaningful way here in the U.S., uh, but also obliviousness to what is happening in South and Southeast Asia, in the former Soviet Union, and so on. Absolutely. I mean, well, first of all, you know, Africa is huge. It's, it's a continent for crying out loud. And there are some countries that are doing incredibly well in the HIV AIDS effort. There was, you know, just news about what's taking place in Swaziland where infection rates have been cut um, nearly overnight um, with, increase, with increased access to healthcare as well as with uh, um, some access to PrEP um, where we're going down from infection rates of one in two uh, to perhaps, you know, one in five or so, which is a huge huge cut. Do I remember um, Swaziland was at one point the highest in the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so there, there are many different African countries that are certainly doing their part and where we're seeing, you know, some, some, some huge advancements in reducing new infections. And then there are other parts of the world where uh, things are a little bit more difficult. So with the cuts in funding that have been taking place, um, a lot of donors have been faced of, of a lot of donors have been spending more time and more resources in particularly low-income countries. Um, so middle-income countries in particular have been suffering, and a lot of the middle-income countries happen to be in Central Asia as well as Southeast Asia. So, uh, you know, huge epidemics that we've seen in Thailand and Vietnam and other places, um, we're seeing more and more donor countries saying, well, the cost for those epidemics and covering those epidemics should be borne more or almost entirely by those countries. And 
uh, I think that that's been the most difficult part globally is that we're seeing some successes in various parts of Africa. And a lot of that is because of donor dollars, because of advocates, as well as what's taking place um, among domestically, among in African countries. But we're not seeing those donor dollars coming in as much anymore for Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people privately fear that we're going to see a resurgence in new infections in specific populations in Asia, um, particularly in Thailand and gay men. Uh, mm. Thailand has done an incredible job uh, of combating HIV. And when donor agencies actually cared and, and spent more time in Thailand, that was when the epidemic was, um, when there was a large heterosexual epidemic, primarily among people in the military, among sex workers and others. That's changed. The numbers have come down precipitously. But where we see the epidemic there in Thailand now is now it's an epidemic among gay and bisexual men. But that's precisely at a moment where those dollars have dried up for donor countries. And unfortunately, the infection rates are not decreasing among men who are sex with men in Thailand. They're increasing. Um, and when you take a look at rates of viral suppression, and that means you know people who are taking medications that control their HIV, that keeps them from transmitting HIV to others, that you see viral suppression rates um, among uh, the general Thai population who are HIV positive that are incredibly high. You know, as much as 50 to 60 percent who are virally suppressed, which is very good. Viral suppression rates for gay men in Thailand is estimated to be about eight or nine percent. So there's a long way that we need to go. Um, and it's not just Thailand. I mean, we're seeing, unfortunately, um, in the Philippines with some of the repressive policies that are taking place uh, among people who are drug users, uh, where it's essentially, you know, the wild, wild west, you suspect someone being a drug dealer or a drug user, um, that you can just go ahead and kill them. Um, there's a lot of fear in that environment. And when you have fear, people are less likely uh, to go to the doctor. People are less likely to take care of their health. And we're seeing potential increases in new infections um, in the Philippines. And, and that's something that's, that's very worrisome. And then, of course, we have Eastern Europe, um, where, you know, in Ukraine, uh, the epidemic was primarily injection drug users. And because of all the political and geopolitical issues that have been taking place in Ukraine with the government, um, and because of, quite frankly, um, uh, a whole lot of stigma around HIV, and particularly populations at high risk of HIV, we're seeing increasing new infections um, in Ukraine, where at one point we saw quite a bit of a decrease. And then Russia is unfortunately the same story, where we're seeing this ongoing persecution of um, the GLBT community. Um, and again, we're starting to see increases in infections among gay men in Russia. So we're not out of the woods by any means in the global picture. And what you see is really a patchwork where there are some places where we're making some real progress um, and potentially even able to say confidently that we could end the epidemic within some of these countries. And in other places, we are seeing where we have made progress traditionally, mm -hmm. but um, we've dropped the ball in terms of funding. Um, and a lot of that progress is being eroded because you're seeing subpopulations where new infections are increasing. And then still yet other places where um, discrimination and stigma um, is systematically turning back the clock, uh, where there's essentially no progress that's taking place. And, and, and that is perhaps one of the most frightening scenarios. One thing that's interesting to know that we haven't spent much time talking about so far, especially given our respective backgrounds, is activism. And we both come out of activist uh, backgrounds, especially around HIV, but a broad range of every possible issue they intersect with. What is the state of global HIV activism? You know, I, you, you hear different things from different people. Um, I think domestically, um, you hear that um, global advocates and activists seem to be more bifurcated between those activists and advocates who are doing national work versus those who are doing more local grassroots work. Mm -hmm. um, and the national work taking place in Washington, D.C., you hear a lot of the um, complaints from some of the local advocates that uh, the national people don't necessarily understand what's taking place locally. Um, and then by the same token, some of the national advocates saying that, you know, many of the people at the local level really don't understand uh, the intricacies of Washington, D.C. Um, and 
the level, the levers of power here, and and what needs to be done to move things. Uh, so you're you're hearing different things uh, in terms of in terms of activism around HIV. I, I do feel like there's a new generation that's still trying to figure out exactly who they are um, and what are the specific issues that they're going to champion around HIV. There doesn't seem to be as unifying as it has been in the past, primarily because we've been successful um, in the past. If you got HIV, then you were likely to die within five, ten years um, because we did not have adequate medication. And that has a way of focusing the mind. That has a way of focusing activism. <laughs> um, it's a different world now um, where there are some advocates who want to spend time um, talking about what's taking place in terms of um, insurance and people of color. There are still yet some other advocates um, who really want to talk about the intersections between HIV and um, other movements for trans populations, for um, communities of color, um, and for other populations. And then you have some other activists who are really just laser focused on, on yet another issue. So it's 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 um, it's a bit all over the place right now in the United States. And there was actually a critique that um, a scientist from UNC Chapel Hill, David, uh, David Wall, W-O-H-L, wrote, um, really imploring American activists to spend more time focusing and, and really picking two or three issues that could help move the ball along in finally addressing domestic HIV. And, and that's been percolating um, on the internet and on Facebook, and it's been causing a, a few waves. Globally, um, you know, there's some amazing advocates um, at the local level in many different countries. Uh, uh, some of the work that's been done in South Africa, some of the progress that's been made um, in other African countries, and certainly in Asia, is... Uh, in no less to some incredible work from our colleagues or advocates um, there. Um, a lot of that incredible work has included working with pharmaceutical companies to make sure that um, there were actually generic drugs that were available for these populations. And a lot of that, you know, some of it was spearheaded um, by uh, activists who are part of ACT UP. Um, but a lot of the grunt work um, was really done by many of the advocates on the ground. And uh, it's, it's just incredible to see the fruit of that labor, uh, that new infections you know, seem, are decreasing, in, in, at least globally, um, mirroring what's taking place um, in, in the United States because of access to, uh, to cheaper drugs. And, and that's continuing. I mean, we just saw a huge deal that was just announced a week ago. Um, with uh, reductions of first-line therapy. Now, the, 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 what we mean by first-line therapy is that the drugs that Americans and other Westerners are taking, um, where it's basically one pill per day, there's no side effects to treat your HIV, that hasn't necessarily been available in Africa or Asia yeah. uh, for most of these epidemics. And because it hasn't been available, they've been taking uh, therapies where it causes more side effects um, where people have to take more pills per day than perhaps one. And if you have side effects from your medication, and if you have to take multiple pills per day, you're probably not going to take it as often as you could. Uh, so what's wonderful about this new deal that was announced is that if we move more of the world into taking one pill a day that's incredibly effective where there's no side effects, um, then we're probably going to see more HIV rates continue to plummet in many different countries. And a lot of that is because of advocates and activists around the world who pressured pharmaceutical companies and others to negotiate lower rates for these more elite first-line therapies that have been available a long time for Americans and others. I mean, I think about where we started out and where we are now and how this work takes place at the intersection of grassroots activism service providers, researchers, the state, pharmaceuticals, and funders. You have had your feet in most of those. <laughs> I don't think we're six for six, but we're pretty close. Yeah. How do you see that? I mean, that is a cluster beyond any easy definition. But how do you see those relationships changing over time? Since certainly where we started is not where we are now, or even where we were 
as of 96 and 97 when things really changed. I agree. And, and then I also would submit that, um, you know, the world was never necessarily that Manichaean in the sense that, you know, people were just a federal employee or they were just an activist or they were just a pharmaceutical uh, worker or a doctor. Um, you know, my time in HIV, the thing that I've noticed is that um, people's lives are really complex. Um, so I know many researchers who are working on HIV because their partners had passed away or they themselves were HIV positive um, or um, members of, um, you know, people in government who um, had children who had HIV. Um, and that's part of the reason why they transitioned into that type of research. You know, so it, it, there was always that personal element that, that you found no matter where you were. So it always rang hollow to me when I would hear people say, that, um, you know, you're just a researcher, you know, you're not necessarily connected to this issue, or you're just somebody who's a federal employee, or you're just somebody who's um, in pharma. Because by and large, you find that there is a personal connection in one way or another. Uh, if not that person being HIV positive themselves, then someone in their family or somebody who's really influential in their lives um, who had HIV. So, so it's, it's, it's always been a little bit more complex than the way that I think that people have, have depicted it. Um, but I agree with you that each one of those different groups have their own functions um, in, in, in gaining successes along the way and that there's drawbacks and pros for each one of those groups. Um, and, and it's been fascinating um, starting as an activist and then going into academia and then going into government um, all the way up from CDC to the White House and then now back again on the activist uh, side of the equation doing a lot of policy work. It, it, it's just been fascinating to see all of these different issues and to be able to really try and understand um, people's perspectives um, which really is about where they sit. Um, and and uh, I find myself many times explaining to advocates the government and some of the issues that federal employees are going through and why they might be equivocating on certain issues and even just some of the arcana of um, government clearance and other little processes that take place that makes it hard for government to move quickly. Um, and then by the same token, I've, I find myself also explaining to government employees why advocates you know, consider uh, that the government is perhaps not moving as quickly in some areas is a legitimate concern um, or that the messaging that we receive from the government tends to be stale on specific issues or even some of the analyses and some of the studies that are being done are not necessarily reflective of the landscape of HIV now. So it's, it's been really um, a blessing to have an opportunity within my own professional life to be able to, to be in all those different areas. Keeping an eye on the clock and being mindful of your time, don't know if we have time for more than one more question. What does this work mean to you after all these years? You know, it's, it's tough. I, you know, I, I remember pointedly um, thinking about so many friends who have died of HIV from the time that that I was really young in New York. I remember at one point I. Uh, I was 22 years old, um, and in that one year at 22, I had 12 friends who died, um, just in that one year. Um, and uh, I remember my father complaining, he was a, a middle-aged man, and he complained that a friend of his from high school had died. Um, and just, you know, this feeling, that first sense of mortality. And, and I looked at him and I said, well, you're lucky, you've only had one friend who died. He's like, I am half your age, and my whole cohort is dying around me. It's like just and, 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 and it hit me that he fundamentally didn't understand that, uh, just like the rest of America at that time fundamentally didn't understand and didn't want to understand, um, almost didn't care about this issue, which is why people had to go out into the streets in the first place and act up. I, I think that's where um, the impetus was for me then um, that changed when I became an ap academic um, and the impetus there was more, you know, I want to do some work in memory of my friends. I want to do some work that's actually going to reduce some of these disparities that we see between blacks and whites. Um, by the time that I got to the White House, I remember I wasn't in the White House for more than two days and there was a mother 
um, whose son had died of HIV. He was in the army, um, came back home, um, contracted HIV um, because of the stigma, didn't say anything to anybody, um, and died. And, and she pleaded with me as we were pulling together President Obama's national HIV AIDS strategy and things that we need to do in the United States. She asked me to take his picture and to have it at my desk at the White House to remind myself that the reason that we're doing this work is for people um, who, um, who have lived, um, you know, many different types of lives, um, who have gone through many different types of hardships um, around HIV. And I think that that's what drove me at the White House, certainly most of the time that I was there. Now it's, um, it's a little bit different. I'm, I'm, I'm more hopeful. Um, there's a lot of caveats. There's a lot of things that are taking place politically that militate against this type of work. There's a lot of things taking place um, globally in terms of donors um, that also militate against it. But with the advances that have been made in science, um, with some of the reductions that we're seeing in HIV stigma, um, both domestically and globally, I'm, I'm guardedly hopeful that, uh, that there's going to be an end to this epidemic um, and that we're going to have generations of individuals who are not going to have to go through what you or I went through um, with the stigma, with the fear, um, and with the numbers of people who are contemporaries who just kind of disappeared one day. And, and that's something that really makes me happy. Thank you so much. We could clearly keep talking for another two hours about this, uh, but I am incredibly grateful for your time, for your perspectives, for this sweeping uh, view of where we are and where we've been. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Ian. I hope you found my conversation with Greg every bit as rewarding as I did. To find out more about Amfar's work, go to their website, just amfar.org. I'll also include links to a couple of the articles mentioned in the interview on our website, radiofreakutopia.com, and in the episode notes. I'll be back next week for Human Rights Day, and I'm also very busy getting ready for it. It's going to be a really exciting 2018 for Radio Freak Utopia. Again, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying what you're hearing, just take a moment to leave us a review. It really does help. So until next week, take care and I'll see you soon.